The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort and Deirdre Bosa. Today, the great rebundling continues. A look at Amazon's new deal with Grubhub as competitors like Uber and DoorDash sink on that news. Plus, what it means for the subscription ecosystem as businesses try to capture consumer demand amid high inflation and rising rates from Apple to Disney. We'll talk about it. Finally, we're going to check in on chips with the CEO of Arm ahead of what might be one of the year's biggest IPOs, Dee. Kyle, we're going to kick off with today's feed with Amazon's shift into food delivery, or maybe we should say back into food delivery. It was here once before. Just Eat, the parent company behind Grubhub, announcing this morning that Amazon is taking a 2% stake in Grubhub. That's its U.S. operations, which could eventually grow to as much as 15% if certain metrics are met. In return, Amazon Prime subscribers in the U.S. will get one year of Grubhub Plus, adding to the list of prime benefits. Guys, it's an interesting strategy for Amazon. Take a look at the shares of Grubhub competitors, Uber and DoorDash. Dash is down about 8%. These companies have been moving beyond restaurant delivery into things like beauty, electronics, convenience. That's Amazon territory right there. So this perhaps is Amazon saying, I see you guys, and I'm going to keep tabs on you, and I'm going to help the number three player. Indeed. Uh, It's somewhat of a tricky game, though, I think, because here's a service that Amazon's adding to Prime that they don't control. And Grubhub, I mean, hasn't done that great in this space. So the risk to Amazon is they add a number three, and to consumers it sort of feels like they're adding a number three, and the value of Prime Mm -hmm. perhaps gets diluted there. But I think this also highlights the important strategic importance of consumer subscription services, Carl, in an inflationary market. I mean, eventually, perhaps even as we speak, <laughs> there's going to be pressure on all of these services to show value either by adding more things mm-hmm. to what they're already charging. They want to be able to raise prices uh, if possible. So how much do they team up with the wireless carriers, with Apple and Amazon, uh, with the other uh, players out there in the market, Peloton, whomever, that has a loyal base that's able to charge a subscription fee? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I wonder to what degree, uh, John, we go back to some of Amazon's earliest days where it really was about price over convenience and whether you, I mean, we were just talking about uh, inflation and, and increased costs for companies and consumers. But what if you wound up with a price war in this area, John? We'd be talking about margins again in no time. We would. I think once you get to a certain size, churn itself, being able to reduce it by a fraction of mm-hmm. a percentage point, has its own value, D. And so if you can add the right thing that yeah. satisfies your user base, um, yeah. you know, then, then that can be pretty valuable. But it's got to be the right thing, and your partner's got to perform. Yeah, well, Carl brings up the idea of price wars. I mean, that is already going on in food delivery, right? Remember that this business is not exactly profitable. Yes, we're seeing some free cash flow, 
DoorDash is adjusted EBITDA profitable. However, in the current market, investors are looking for cold, hard gap profitability. And now that you have a player like Amazon helping out a Grubhub, you have to wonder, is that going to raise the cost, not just for Grubhub, though they said this is going to be neutral expense-wise this year, but for DoorDash and Uber, that's going to up the ante on competition, right, John? So, I don't so think it will. it's a space. You don't think so? I, I don't think so because even though we're looking at overall profitability and all that, it's a market-by-market game, right? And the fact that Amazon is partnering up with Grubhub doesn't change their economics. Grubhub has to get the right kind of scale, have workers who are willing to deal with them. They've got to you know, deal with that labor game on the right level. It, it doesn't really change the operational landscape so much as it, it changes the overall you know, subscription competition. So, I mean, Amazon could play uh, with Grubhub an unprofitable game, mm-hmm. but the, the operations have to work the right way. And I don't see there's anything that Amazon's doing in this deal yet that helps Grubhub get better at operating. It's a good point, John. My point, though, is that these other companies, Uber and Dash, the competitors, are moving more into logistics, right? You've got DoorDash with its Dash Marts. It's trying to do convenience by itself. That is capital intensive. They are going up against Amazon. And Amazon, maybe, we don't know what this partnership is going to look like in the future if Amazon is going to use Grubhub to bring more users into the prime flywheel and say, hey, you can already get your beauty and convenience with us. You don't need to go to a DoorDash or an Uber. Yeah, I mean... You know, speaking of beauty and convenience, you know, the, those blowouts they're giving in London, maybe they can <laughs> spread that. <laughs> the as Amazon well. blowouts. Yeah. yeah, mobile. They can put it in the car. Anyway, for more, let's bring in Needham's Bernie McTurnan, who covers Uber and DoorDash, other companies trying to make subscriptions work, like Roblox and Peloton. Uh, I wonder what you think of this, and in this economy particularly, what sort of value subscription players have to be prepared to deliver that perhaps they didn't a couple of years ago? Yeah, no, um, thanks for having me. Um, I would say the, the one thing I would add to the conversation you guys were just having is the fact that uh, Grubhub, it's its a variable cost model, right? So it's not fixed costs where um, like Verizon adding Disney Plus, it doesn't matter if another person is watching an episode of Obi-Wan Kenobi, that's a fixed cost Disney Plus. And that's, I think that's a key point here in that we're wondering how aggressive Amazon and, and Grubhub will be with this deal. Um, certainly a headline negative for or Uber and DoorDash, but the actual results really depend on how aggressively Amazon pushes this. Um, And really the devil will be in the details in terms of what's the split, how much is Amazon actually subsidizing? Because we think that Grubhub's probably coming to Amazon from a position of weakness. Remember the valuation of Grubhub got marked down from $7 billion when they purchased it two years ago to now the asking price closer to a billion dollars with Justy Takeaway looking to sell it. Um, Remember that Grubhub did a big big, uh, $15 free lunch not too long ago too. So they're being incrementally aggressive. So we're just wondering that, you know, kind of what that split is, and and that will in turn, I think, inform how aggressive Amazon will be or not. Granted, they got the 2% equity stake in the company, but, you know, 2% on a billion dollars just isn't really moving the needle for Amazon. Even got $15 billion, there there has to be a larger play here. Well, Bernie, I think you're touching on something that we did mention, which is this doesn't necessarily help Grubhub operationally, right? They, They still have to make money eventually, keep drivers happy as well as keep costs for uh, the end user low enough to drive volume and there's only so many free lunches you can give away so what are the metrics you'd watch to see if this is working 
Well, the, the way they would help them operationally, though, is if subscribers go higher, right? And so if, um, and if the more subscribers you, on the, you have on the platform, I, I would think that the, um, the, the stickier those are. So, you know, there's a reason why Uber's pushing Uber One, Dash is pushing Dash Pass. Um, there's that, that benefit of having that more sticky customer relationship where you're not having to go out and reacquire those customers constantly. Um, that's one of the reasons why we're bullish on, on Uber because of Uber One and that cross-platform benefit. And then DoorDash, we think they have over, close to 12 million Dash Pass subscribers right now. So again, for, for Grubhub to really, or for this partnership to really move the needle for Grubhub, we think you're talking about, you know, it needs to be in the millions of subscribers, not just, you know, a couple hundred thousand to, to really make a dent in the industry, which I think will be tough to do. Right, Bernie, but Amazon has, what, 100 million plus prime households. So even if they convert a small percentage of that, that's a win for Grubhub. Why does Amazon, why would you think that Amazon needs to subsidize this? Could this just be, when we think about a larger play, a way for them to keep track of Uber and DoorDash as they move beyond their core competency and into Amazon space? Yeah, well, someone has to pay, you know, pick up that check for the $10 a month. Um, and so... Grubhub Why would that could be run, Amazon? Ex- well, or at least part of it, right? So Grubhub just could go out and say, hey, new promotion, free for a year to everyone. They don't need to just limit themselves. Obviously, Prime membership is huge, but they don't need to limit themselves to Prime membership. Um, you know, and the, so, you know, they already have a partnership with Amazon with, with, col- with the college students get, a, a, I believe, a discount or, or free membership as well, too. So, so kind of piggyback off this relationship. But someone has to be picking up that $10. And if it's just Grubhub doing all of it, they could do, do it themselves. Right. They could maybe cut expenses somewhere else, like marketing, now that they have access to that prime customer base. Bernie, what do you think the long time, long-term game here is for Amazon? It was in restaurant delivery, closed that a few years ago. Why is it getting back in right now? Yeah, I mean that's that's the million dollar question. We don't cover Amazon. That's um, that's our colleague Laura Martin who covers it. Um, from my perspective, where what I'm most interested in, you know, if Amazon's trying to make some sort of home run play here, it's what's going to incrementally happen in delivery. Again, my starting point is I'm thinking that Grubhub is approaching them from a position of weakness. So. Um, if they viewed Grubhub as an undervalued asset with couriers, with some sort of consumer demand, with a relationship with restaurants, all of a sudden, could you parlay that into a maybe even bigger thought beyond just Whole Foods, but adding dark, dark stores and, and other ways of advancing your grocery strategy? And if this is a piece of it, um, and they just got a sweetheart deal because because of the position that Grubhub's in. So it's maybe not the order of operations they would have liked it to happen in, but um, nevertheless, it's a it's an undervalued asset or underutilized asset to have a relationship with. Hey, Bernie, a couple of questions about uh, the future of online grocery in a recessionary scenario. You've done some poll work that asks, why would you stop ordering online grocery? Uh, a quarter say too expensive, but 46% actually say it's quality control. What does price elasticity look like if things really do get tough for the consumer? Yeah, uh, no, Carl, thanks for the question. And so kind of two pieces here. One, um, we picked up on an e-marketer survey that asked people in an inflationary scenario, where are you most likely to cut? And dining out was actually the top thing that people are most likely to cut. Groceries towards the bottom, it and most interesting as in our discussion in terms of DoorDash and Uber, um, food delivery is actually a lot closer to grocery than it is to dining out. So right then we think that um, food delivery is actually more sticky than we maybe would have originally anticipated. Um, 
And then the, the second piece, though, is that we surveyed, uh, I believe we went out and spoke to about 37 Albertson stores, uh, both of which have partnerships with Uber and DoorDash. And, um, and so over half commented that they're seeing increased um, order volume for, for delivery. But what we picked up on that was really interesting is that this Albertsons to go product, and that's curbside delivery. Um, what's so significant there is that someone else is doing the picking and packing for you. So we think that movement from having someone doing the picking and packing to someone doing the delivery for you just isn't that big of a leap. Again, it's all, you know, we've spoken to experts before in the past where they say the biggest hang up in this is consumers making sure they, they get the, you know, the, the avocado that's ripe, the, the steak doesn't have the gristle on it. So um, consumers, the pandemic really being, being the accelerant to people saying, hey, I don't want to go, go to grocery stores anymore. Let me try to have someone pick and pack for you. The grocers realize that opportunity, make sure the consumers have a great experience um, and really going at that, um, that major pain point, which is that, you know, you get the right produce, the right protein that you want. Yeah. Quality's got to be there or they will churn. Bernie, thank you. Thank you. Let's turn to hardware this morning. Spending and any signs of a recession. Should we expect even more of a demand slowdown? And how will that impact stocks? Goldman today cuts its price target on Apple. Uh, they go to 130. Yesterday it was Evercore cutting HPQ. Let's bring in the analysts behind that call. Evercore, ISI's Amit Daryanani. Amit, it's great to have you back. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Talk about just generally how you see the environment. If this is an enterprise story at large, a consumer story at large, a big pull forward, or is there something deeper going on? Yeah, you know, so I think it's a combination of a really big pull forward you have, especially on PCs, maybe to some degree on smartphones, uh, along with the slowing consumer demand pattern that you're seeing, right? Uh, if you think of PCs, for example, and this was really a big part of our downgrade on HP. Uh, you know, we were selling about 250 million PC units consistently pre-pandemic. That number shot to 350 million units last year, the peak of the pandemic. And so the question is kind of what does normalization look like? I think that's step one. Uh, and I think the reality that a lot of us, especially consumers and maybe enterprises, have bought PCs, the desire to refresh them, maybe pushed out by several years versus not. I think that along with higher inflation, where do you start to cut back spending on, PC seems to be a logical thing given the utilization rates of a computer haven't really altered that much and you have a much newer, better machine than you had five years ago. So I think PCs are more at risk. It's mostly consumer. There are signs of it on the enterprise side as well, but it's really a consumer-driven uh, softness right now, I'd say. Interesting. You know, the past uh, couple of months, we've, we've seen some calls from the street arguing that IBM, decent place to hang out in a downturn. Some say similar things about Dell. You don't have any problem with that. No, uh, listen, uh, IBM has, you know, very high-end, very large enterprise exposure. Uh, it's a lot of reoccurring business if you think about IBM, right? If you need a mainframe, you need a mainframe. If you have consulting with IBM, it's really a reoccurring business. So I do think the high-end enterprise, uh, or really enterprises broadly, will be a lot more stable place to be in through a recession if you have one versus not. And the reality is technology and solutions that IBM or Dell will provide you uh, are probably the way you offset inflation and the way you offset labor issues. Uh, so I think technology would not be a cost center this time around. It might be an enabler to offset the issues you have. I mean, speaking of offsetting inflation and, and back to the consumer, is now an ideal time to launch a hardware subscription service of a different type or, or an installment product? If you are an Apple, for example, with a lot of cash, 
and uh, with a high margin, kind of relatively high expense product? Oh, boy. Um, listen, you know, Apple needs to figure a way to drive iPhone unit growth, right? And if consumers are going to be willing to pay less for it as you go forward in theory, there has to be different ways for you to incentivize me as a consumer or anyone else. Uh, I do think having a subscription model or Apple's own, you know, buy now, pay later for iPhones is a really attractive way to do it. Uh, the other one I would argue that you could see very well is carriers and cable companies could start to subsidize iPhones more aggressively uh, through the iPhone cycle that we have coming up, right? So I, I think in Apple, in Apple's case, the math is inflation is a worry in terms of how much consumers want to spend. Can I incentivize them to, you know, financial promotions or can I get carriers and cable companies incentivizing to buy the phone? I think that's a map they're going to look at. I mean, good stuff. Uh, quite an environment. We're in transition of uh, Emmy Delionati joining us. Talk some HP. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Thank you. And coming up, venture capital is shifting into the public markets. What that means for retail investors and why some are calling it not a great thing. We will discuss next. Tech Check is just getting started. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... <laughs> 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Let's get a gut check on Rivian, up 11% this morning after the company said it delivered more than 4,400 vehicles in Q2 and saying they're still on track to build 25,000 EVs this year, although those projections come after they cut their full-year production totals in half back in March. Shares are still down 70% for the year, have fallen 80% from the all-time highs after going public back in November. There's been a sea change in the tech investing world. VC firms like Sequoia and Andreessen Horowitz and Bessemer are reclassifying themselves as registered investment advisors. So basically hedge funds, which will give them more freedom to hold public equities and other asset classes. At the same time, hedge funds like Tiger Global and D1 have become major startup investors, pouring money into illiquid private companies. Those firms that went all in on growth equity now, like Tiger, are having terrible years. Our next guest thinks that this is a big distraction and bad for both types of investors. Joining us now, Incisive Ventures managing partner, Martin Tobias. Martin, it's great to have you on Tech Check. Uh, lay out the case for us. Why should VCs stick to private earlier stage investments? Why doesn't their experience there make them you know, decent public market investors. Uh, hi, and thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, the bottom line is they're two completely different environments. The private markets are a low information environment with illiquid uh, securities. And basically, you're trying to figure out, you know, find the next big thing from some, some young founder, and you're analyzing the founder's experience and the product market fit. 
public markets have a lot more liquidity, a lot more hedging strategies, and a lot more information. And it requires just completely different uh, managers, in my experience. And you know, I've been doing this for 25 years. Uh, finding the next big thing is very different from managing a public portfolio. Martin, I think you bring up a really important point as well <clears throat> on fees. Why should VCs be charging 2 and 20 for their public market investments? Exactly. Um, you know, I'm a limited partner in 17 funds, and I like being in funds that find the next big thing, and I'm happy to pay 2 and 20 for that. But for public market managers, I pay my public market manager about 50 basis points, and uh, I really believe that VCs going forward are going to kind of go back to their traditional thing, which is to give the public stocks that they have to their limited partners like myself, and hedge funds are going to do what they do. Uh, best. I think it's going forward, people are going to revert to the, to what their superpowers are. And uh, I think hedge fund managers and VCs are just very different in that way. Well, Martin, I, I can see why limited partners wouldn't want VCs doing this. But is this for the public market retail investor a sign of the times that these VCs see opportunity in companies that used to be uh, private, perhaps went public, and you know, their values have tanked, and some public market investors are leaving them for dead now. Uh, I certainly see, see that's why they're doing it. They see opportunity. But um, you know, as a limited partner in a venture fund, that's not why I joined the venture fund. I joined them to find the next big thing. I mean, there's a reason why Berkshire Hathaway doesn't have a venture fund, for example. Right. <laughs> I, I, I get that, but most of the people watching don't have the opportunity to become limited partners. So probably the best thing that they can get, that they can take away from this conversation is big picture, what is it that's happening in the economy, in the markets, in business that is causing this to happen? And in essence, some uh, investors who are used to taking long-term bets, expecting an outsized return, are now looking to do that in some stuff that, hey, retail investors could buy too, right? Well, absolutely. And I think there's incredible opportunity today uh, for retail investors in some of these tech stocks that have gone public uh, recently. And I think in retail investors should do that on their own dime or find a, an index fund that's doing it well. Like, for example, in 2000, I bet a friend of mine um, that uh, Amazon would outperform Walmart over the next 20 years. And um, I did 100 times better than he did. And I think um, you know, retail investors today, if they look at some of the beaten down stocks, a lot of retail investors didn't like Amazon in 2000. But if you had bought it, um, you know, looking at it through the lens of somebody that likes growth stocks, <laughs> like a venture capitalist, uh, you would have done very well. Uh, my pick for going forward is uh, would be in that category would be somebody like Shopify. Interesting. Um, Martin, in the case of Sequoia, I understand what you're saying is that there's a lot of opportunity in this market. But in the case of Sequoia, they became an RIA at what looks at the moment, at least, to be not a great time. I mean, if they had sold out of big stakes in DoorDash and Unity, their returns would be a lot higher than they are now. So how much weight should the average retail investor put into what VCs are doing in public markets? I, I think retail investors should see uh, VCs in the public markets as a negative thing uh, because, you know, these, that's not the VC's primary uh, job. Um, I think that um, 
They should focus on what the professional um, retail investors or professional stock investors are doing. Martin, it's great to have you on. Thank you for your insights on this topic we've been talking a lot about. Thanks for having me. Despite consumer slowdown fears, uh, chip design company Arm still expanding. CEO Renee Haas is going to join us to discuss that when we come back. Don't go away. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort and Deirdre Bosa today, checking in on things market-wise. A pretty choppy action within a limited range here. 38.18 on the S&P. Dow's down about 95. Oil continues to chop well below $100 a barrel. Let's get a news update with our Seema Modi. Hey, Seema. Hey, Carl. Good morning. Here's what's happening at this hour. Mortgage rates dropping for the second week in a row, but homeowners and potential buyers remain more reluctant to lock in a rate. The average interest rate for a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage fell to 5.74%. And new data shows apartment sales in Manhattan fell a whopping 30% in the month of June, driven by recession fears and plunging stock values. The FDA, as we've been telling you, has put its ban of Juul's e-cigarettes on hold for now. It's allowing them to stay on the market while the company appeals the decision. Juul, which is partly owned by Altria, claims the ban would cause the company irreparable harm. U.S. service businesses think restaurants or hotels are growing at a slowing pace in the last two years, that according to the ISM. At the same time, the Labor Department reports that the total job openings fell in May, but still outnumbered the number of people looking for work and remains near record highs. Together, the two stats could be a sign that the economy is slowing down. We'll find out more about the Fed's view of the economy at 2 p.m. today when it releases the minutes of its last meeting. John, back to you. Seema, thanks. Turning now to chips, the semiconductor index down nearly 40% this year. And challenges are not over, especially if the demand environment continues to weaken, growth slows. But chip designer Arm is still bullish, just last week announcing new chip designs across mobile and PC. Joining us to discuss, Arm CEO Renee Haas. Renee, welcome. Um, Arm's an interesting part of the semiconductor ecosystem because you guys are sort of making the blueprints that people are going to use to make designs that are eventually going to get manufactured. So you can't get too caught up in the near term. What are the fundamental bets that you're making with these new products that you expect are going to drive the computing economy in the next decade? We just announced a new platform for mobile devices. And a couple of things that are really exciting about, uh, about that platform is, uh, first off, uh, people may not be aware of this, but over uh, half of the $180 billion gaming market uh, is done on mobile devices. 
So the experience really, really matters. Mobile gaming is really, really important. We've announced a new platform called Immortalis, which is a GPU for mobile gaming, giving a fantastic experience for users. And then additionally, we've uh, we've upped the performance on our CPU, uh, and now the CPU on that platform is going to be world-class for laptops. And in fact, that CPU uh, that we've just announced is, uh, in some cases, over 30% faster than conventional laptop designs today. So it's a, it's a great new platform for mobile and for laptops. Yeah. Okay, now the market kind of stinks for IPOs right now. Are you still going to do that soon? You know, I'll go back to what Masa said back in February uh, when uh, we announced the transition to, uh, to the new arm, if you will. Uh, and that was the intent to go public sometime before, between then and the end of our fiscal year, which is the end of uh, March of 2023. So nothing has changed since that announcement. I mean, nothing, nothing has changed? Or <laughs> I don't, I don't, well, are you white knuckling? I can't say much more beyond the, the plans that we uh, that we talked about back in February. Renee, I'm wondering, you know, um, looking at derivative industries, auto is a great example where we still have some OEMs talking about chip shortages lasting into next year. I wonder how quickly is that going to melt away? Uh, and is there a point at which we're just not going to talk about chip shortages anymore? You know, John, I, I think it's a really hard thing to call. Uh, the The pandemic really accelerated a, a lot of demands for all types of digitization in our world. And at the same time, we saw the supply lines uh, fractured in ways that we had never seen before. Ports that were closed, uh, ships sitting offshore for a long time, different areas of the, uh, of the ecosystem slowed down. And when you think of an automobile uh, and the amount of semiconductors that go into it, and an automobile being really a just-in-time manufacturing process, uh, it really was almost a perfect storm, if you will, of, uh, of supply challenges. I think it is going to take a while to settle itself down. Uh, the world was much flatter uh, years ago uh, before all the things that have hit us in the last couple of years. And I think until we get adjusted to what that normal looks like, uh, I still think we're going to see shortages. Do you think it's going to elongate uh, the process at, by which autos become even more chip pervasive? In other words, is it going to, I guess, is it going to slow down the pace of innovation and the dream of what we thought the car was or may still eventually become? I don't think so. I think it's going to make it a little bumpier in terms of production and predicting demand, and particularly as we're moving into new technology spaces. But undeniably, uh, electric vehicles are, are, are great for the planet. Undeniably, autonomous vehicles are great for the planets because they're simply safer for, for people. So I think the long-term trend that we're seeing relative to autonomous and electrification, that's going to continue. I just think the industry is going to have to figure out really how to manage all of that in terms of the, the new supply-demand issues that we face. Hey, Renee, it's Steve. As industries like auto look to integrate chips into their own businesses, do them in-house, what is the argument that they should be designing with ARM, a closed source system versus an open source one like the one that RISC-V offers? Well, I like to refer to our company as, a, as an open licensing model. We will uh, uh, openly license to, to anybody on the planet. Now, as far as companies looking to do uh, something vertical or buying from a, a silicon provider, uh, for us, uh, it doesn't really matter. We work very, very closely with both. We have very uh, long relationships with silicon partners who supply into the industry. At the same time, increasingly, we're seeing OEMs, and not just in, in auto, whether it's in hyperscalers or other parts of the industry, uh, looking to do their own designs. Uh, for us, we're going to serve uh, the market either way. So then what would you tell um, a company or an industry that does want to sort of start more from scratch, doesn't necessarily want to license, but wants to use an open source system? What are the risks inherent in that? 
Uh, sorry, you cut out on me for a second. You're talking about the risks in, in what? I'm sorry. In using an open source system like the one that Risk Five, which has gained traction over the last few years. You know, one of the things that really makes ARM pervasive and, and the world's most popular architecture is the software ecosystem, which is uh, really unlike any other. We have uh, over 15 million developers uh, who work on ARM, over, over 10 million apps that are natively run on ARM. Uh, if you're designing a system, whether it's a, a cloud uh, data center, whether it's a mobile phone, whether it's a laptop, whether it's autonomous, the software ecosystem is, 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 is so important relative to the design choices. Uh, and that's what we think really makes ARM the, uh, the architecture of choice. You know, just last year, uh, we had over 29 billion chips that were shipped by our partners. That's really driven, you know, candidly by the software ecosystem. We've got great products. Uh, efficiency is what we're known for, but really it's the software ecosystem that's unparalleled for ARM. And Renee, how important is being an independent public company to being able to drive that ecosystem? I mean, I had some sense that, uh, you know, people were looking at options outside of ARM because they were concerned about its independence a couple of years back. Um, is flexing that independence now an important part of continuing to uh, feed the ecosystem? Yeah, you know, I, I'll kind of go back to, again, it's, it's the software ecosystem that really makes ARM, I think, and candidly, probably the most unique company in the world uh, regarding the openness of its architecture and the fact that so many people use it and it's in so many, so many end systems. Uh, there's always going to be competition. There's always going to be options that people look at relative to design A versus design B versus design C. What we find almost every time, why, why do people choose ARM? Why do they want to continue to develop on ARM? It's all about the developers. It's all about the software ecosystem. And it's really knowing that if you're going to develop an end product, the fact that the uh, end user is going to have a multitude of choices regarding software that can run on it. It's because they know how to run it on ARM. Rene Haas, ARM CEO, thank you. Thank you. Coming up, media companies in cost-cutting mode facing the prospect of a weaker economy. Julia's got the story on what that means for consolidation. First, keep an eye on Alibaba today. City adding the name to its focus list and forecasting more than 40% upside from here. It's already up 18% in the last month. $172 price target there. Stay with us. We're back in two. Sun Valley always brings together the biggest names and most powerful leaders in media and tech. This year, they came to the conference facing a list of headwinds from subscriber issues at Netflix to the risks of an ad spending slowdown. Our Julia Borston is live from Sun Valley, Idaho, and a gorgeous live shot. Morning, JB. Good morning to you, Carl. Well, macroeconomic uncertainty is certainly looming large in conversations here, especially when it comes to this question of how a pullback in consumer spending and in advertising spending could potentially drive M&A. Now, Sheryl Sandberg is here fresh on the heels of the announcement of her plans to leave Meta, and CEO Mark Zuckerberg is on the attendee list. Meta is expected to suffer from that ad pullback. And there's one pending deal in focus here, Twitter's sale to Elon Musk. Twitter CEO Prague Agarwal is here for the first time along with CFO Ned Siegel and Elon Musk is scheduled to speak at the end of the conference. Now, the CEO of recently merged Warner Brothers Discovery is here, David Zaslav, with his stock down 38 percent since that merger closed in April. I'm hearing a lot of chatter among executives here about the pressure that company is under with its high debt load and Zaslav's imperative to slash costs. When I pressed Zaslav on the need to consider more potential M&A, he told me the company is well-positioned. 
When you look at the assets that we have, we're probably the most strategically complete, broadest demographics of appeal of our, of our content, CNN, Warner Brothers. We have the whole ecosystem, Warner Brothers Motion Picture and Warner Brothers Television. So I think our assets are great. And in the long run, uh, you know, the market's been a little rough on everyone. But uh, we're super excited about the opportunity, and we think we're going to create a lot of value for shareholders over time. Netflix co-CEOs Reed Hastings and Ted Sarandos are here two weeks ahead of their next earnings report, which will reveal just how much further subscribers could shrink this year. Some here speculating to me that if Netflix subscribers continue to decline, could become an acquisition target. And a buyer could be the likes of Comcast, CNBC's parent company. Its CEO, Brian Roberts, is here arriving yesterday as well. Now, there's another media giant betting big on streaming. Disney CEO Bob Chapek is here, along with his content distribution chief, Kareem Daniel, here for the first time. Chapek's predecessor, of course, Bob Iger is also here. And one thing I'm hearing from all of these players is that recessionary pressures will accelerate consumer shift towards ad-supported streaming services and that the lower the market caps drop of the likes of Netflix, Paramount, Lionsgate and others, the more different deals we're sure to see. But another thing I'm hearing is that the tech companies such as Amazon and Apple, they're constrained as buyers because of all that regulatory oversight. Guys? Uh, interesting, Julia. I also wonder what you're hearing and expecting about content itself. Is the bull market for content over? There's a headline I saw, I think, yesterday about HBO Max pulling back on original content in Europe. Do they have to choose their targets more carefully, spend less, and might that ripple through the market? Well, what, what I'm hearing is that they believe that they're still going to be able to generate revenue to fuel that content engine, but the revenue is going to be coming from ads more so than just straight streaming subscription services. But if we do see more consolidation, if the likes of a Paramount teams up with some of these other players, or if we see some of the really small players, such as an AMC um, or a Lionsgate, those companies really team up together, then that could drive um, a, a, the, the sort of overall amount of content lower. But I think right now the conversation is more about the shift towards ad-supported rather than an overall bursting of what has been a very robust content bubble, many would say. Speaking of which, uh, Julia, the other interesting debate is whether or not the smarter thing is to drown the consumers in content, to keep them coming back, giving them tons of choice in the hopes that they will renew. Uh, the other is to make very targeted, high-profile projects, the likes of which uh, Warner Brothers is clearly uh, pursuing that strategy. Which do you feel is winning out for the moment? Well, one thing I'm hearing, Carl, is in light of all this talk about streaming, is that the box office is back. And it's been so interesting to see the big numbers out from Minions, the, the new Minions movie from CNBC's parent um, company, Comcast uh, Universal, and the fact that you have movies like Top Gun continuing to deliver. So I think there is this sense that there is a robust demand for content. And a number of people have reminded me that in past recessions, content businesses have held up well. And, and, and typically in recessions, the box office is, is incredibly robust because going to the movies is seen as a, as, a, as a great option when people are tight on cash. But it's going to be really interesting to see if this recession, assuming there is a recession, if this is different because consumers yeah. have so many streaming options at home. So I think whenever, Deirdre, whenever people are talking about the, the surge in, in, in streaming options and, and the shift towards ad support, you have to wonder what kind of dynamic that will have with the box office, which in many ways is a driver of the content on streaming services. 
Right. And Julia, as we talk about those recessionary pressures, um, you say that a lot of the chatter at Sun Valley this year is shifting to that ad-based models and some of the bigger players getting on board with that. Um, But is there a sense that these recessionary pressures are going to grow and hit the ad market right at this sort of critical moment for some of these players like Netflix going into it? Well, yes. So as all of these uh, players, you know, Disney's getting ready ready to launch an ad-supported version of Disney Plus, and obviously Netflix is is rushing to get um, their ad-supported version off the ground. One advantage that those players have, even if there is an overall ad contraction, is that advertisers want to be able to target consumers, measure the impact of their ads, and do so with premium content. And that's where digital uh, digital video, all of these streaming options have an advantage over even, t- say, traditional television or the likes of traditional radio, outdoor, some of these traditional players. So there is a sense that ad dollars will be shifting towards the types of spending that can be best measured um, and have the highest return on investment. So if you're an advertiser, you, you might get more bang for your buck if you put a dollar into ad-supported streaming rather than old, more old-fashioned advertising such as outdoor. All right. Julia, thanks. Looking forward to more. Julia Borston. And meanwhile, another crypto lender bites the dust. The latest on Voyager Digital's downfall is next. As Bitcoin heads lower this morning, don't go away. Checking in on the continued stress in the crypto market today, brokerage firm Voyager Digital files for Chapter 11 after suffering huge losses in the collapse of crypto hedge fund Three Arrows Capital, which continues to ripple through the market. Voyager didn't go down without a fight. Alameda, FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried's trading firm, extended a line of credit of half a billion dollars to the brokerage last month and is now listed as their largest creditor in the filing. For now, crypto still in some free fall. Bitcoin just north of 20K, more than 50% uh, down, more than 50% year-to-date. And related names like Coinbase have fallen even further, down nearly 80% since the new year. Uh, this morning, Atlantic downgrades coin to neutral, cuts the target in half. A lot of concerns ranging from talent tension to misinformation over the company's financial strength. But above all, uh, they say the downside risk is prolonged and more severe as this crypto winter is worse than anticipated. Uh, John, you know, it's it's hard to make parallels, but if you were to take total crypto market cap, I've said it's a couple of Johnson and Johnson's, maybe three Home Depots. That's the neighborhood win right now. I, I just think, Carl, this is an incredibly important story because The crypto ecosystem, to some extent, is a house of cards, underregulated. We're seeing people who put money into certain currencies just uh, unable to to trade, to get their money back. D, I mean, there's this lender vault that has also suspended withdrawals after saying three weeks ago that everything was fine. I I think it's understood that this is underregulated, but these businesses that even the likes of Coinbase have invested in just were not standing on anything stable. And and what I'm wondering is, even if the major currencies, Bitcoin, Ether, just stay at the point where they are now, how many more of these are going to freeze, perhaps go bankrupt? How far does this ripple? Mm -hmm. And then, hey, if they drop another however many double-digit percent, what happens then? 
underregulated is so key, John. But you'll remember that there were some players calling for more regulation, trying to work with regulators during the boom times. Um, so maybe you'll see some survive as well. Certainly, I'm fascinated, endlessly fascinated with Sam Bankman-Fried's role in all of this as a backstop, protecting some of these firms, even a Voyager, which is going to go down anyways. It makes me wonder, guys, where is CZ in all of this? The CEO of Binance, does he feel a responsibility to backstop, just like SBF says that he does, even at a loss to FTX? Um, so I'm curious. CZ, come talk to us. Anyways, guys, Morgan Stanley calling the stock a quote. I believe this is Coinbase now calling the stock a safe haven in the second half. We will dig in after this. Stay with us. I got check on cybersecurity today. Morgan Stanley calls the space a safe haven that shows no signs of slowing down. Some of their top picks, Palo Alto Networks, followed by CrowdStrike and CyberArk. Uh, Morgan Stanley projecting more than 20% growth amid an elevated threat environment that continues. More tech check continues after the break. One more thing before we go. Microsoft's $69 billion takeover of Activision Blizzard facing a new hurdle this morning as regulators in the U.K. open a new antitrust investigation into the deal, looking at whether it could hurt competition through, quote, higher prices, lower quality or reduced choice. Microsoft responding that they will fully cooperate and that they, quote, ultimately believe a thorough review will help the deal close with broad confidence. Um, guys, not surprising. This is very much baked into the stock price trading just below $79. Remember, John, the offer price for Microsoft, 95 bucks, well below that. Yes. Soft deadline, though, Carl, for them to decide whether they're really going to scrutinize this uh, over in Europe is September 1st. So, yeah, I'm sure Microsoft hopes they, they take a really close look, but really fast. Yeah, uh, Kramer, interestingly, did express a little skepticism about that deal earlier this morning on Squawk on the Street. Overall, guys, uh, oil just cannot seem to hold 96. We're going to watch that. And then it's going to turn to employment uh, in the coming 48 hours, of course, with claims tomorrow and Bullard and that jobs number on Friday. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.